Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to ask all of you to offer a quiet prayer as you turn to Luke 2 and ask the Lord to keep you from disregarding a familiar passage. Familiarity, uh, as the old phrase goes, familiarity breeds contempt. I think more often it breeds just a dullness of heart to that which is powerful and beautiful. And this is an extremely familiar passage, which I'm sure you've probably already heard several times this Christmas season. But it is powerful. The truth here will change your life. And so I'm just going to ask you to ask the Lord to keep you from just tuning out, saying, I've heard this already. I know this part. Uh, Listen, this is the word of God, and it will change your life. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I'm convinced that humiliation is one of our greatest fears in life. Historically, Humiliation, because of how much we fear it, historically, humiliation has been used in many forms of punishment to try to motivate people to change their behavior. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, it tells the story of when King David sent some messengers to the king of the Ammonites because his father had died, and he sent uh, messengers to um, Proclaim peace and to actually show sympathy towards this king who had lost his father. But the king of the Ammonites interpreted David's action in sending these messengers as a hostile action that he considered these messengers spies. And so what the king of the Ammonites did is he had half of their beards, these messengers had half of their beards shaved off and had their robes cut the bottom of the robes cut off and they were sent back in shame and humiliation. Back in earlier days in the European continent and then even during the colonial days of our own country, they would put criminals that had committed minor crimes in stocks and pillories where they would be in the middle of the town square and they'd have their head in their hands put in the block And people would walk by and spit on them and make fun of them and throw things at them. 
Humiliation is a form of punishment. If a mob wanted to carry out vengeance, they would often do tar and feathering of the offender. After World War II, when the uh, Nazis were defeated, in France, where the Nazis had occupied the country, if any of the women were suspected of having fraternized or collaborated with the Nazis in any way, they were forced to walk through their hometown with bare feet and, sha bare feet and shaved heads to humiliate them. I was thinking about how even in our schools, we used to use humiliation as a common punishment. Putting a dunce camp on a kid's head, making him sit in the corner, put his nose on the blackboard. My third grade teacher, Mr. Deffenbaugh, had a unique one. He, if he saw any of us chewing gum during class, he would make us take the gum out of our mouth and stick it on our nose and wear it the rest of the day. It's very effective. They don't do that kind of thing anymore, but it was effective. Humiliation is effective because we fear it so much. Just think for a moment how many things you do in a given day to avoid being made fun of. How you get dressed in the morning. How you talk to your friends. The car that you drive, the house that you live in. These are things that we choose, things that we do because we want to be respectable in the eyes of other people. We don't want to be humiliated. We don't want to be made fun of. Matter of fact, I talk to pastors a lot and one of our common fears and one of our common nightmares actually is we'll be in a church service like this and we'll get up and we'll walk up to the pulpit to begin to preach and we'll look down and we don't have any notes because we forgot to prepare a message. That's a very common nightmare that pastors have all the time. I think students have it, you know, showing up on the day of finals and never having been to class and never having studied. You know, it's a very common fear because we fear being humiliated. The pastors of Oakwood have labeled this Advent series for 2021, we've labeled it, Come Thou Unexpected Jesus. Of course, a twist on the famous hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. We call it the, the coming of the unexpected Jesus because there's almost nothing about how the Messiah, when he came the first time, there's almost nothing about how he came that wasn't really expected by anybody. Even the devout people of the Old Covenant it was easy, and as a matter of fact, just this morning I was reading a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament, and I was struck by how if I was reading that, I would expect this king coming on a great war steed with a, with a great army to defeat his enemies, because so much of the Old Testament prophecies were in that language, and certainly that will happen. But that's not how they, he came the first time, and that's certainly not what the people expected, that he would come in humiliation. The actual, the word advent means arrival, and so that's what we're actually focusing on today, is the actual arrival of the Messiah. In Micah, it said that he would come, he who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days, in Micah, it said he would come to a little town. And that in and of itself signaled something was going to be different about the coming of this king. When the king of the universe came to earth, he did not come with earthly majesty. He did not come with earthly power. He did not come with earthly glory. 
Instead, he came with earthly poverty, earthly disgrace, earthly humiliation. It is interesting that when you look at uh, theological studies of the person and work of Jesus Christ, one of the major categories is the humiliation of Christ. What human being would have dreamed that up for the coming of the Son of God into the world, that he would come by means of humiliation? The Westminster Shorter Catechism in question number 27 refers to the humiliation of Christ in this way. It says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition. Two aspects of his humiliation. Of course, there's more in that answer to that catechism question that comes later, but the ones we're focused on now is that he he was first of all born. He's the eternal son of God, and yet he was born as one of his creatures, as a human being. He was fully human. He added to his divine nature a human nature. That was part of his humiliation. You won't feel the impact of this incarnation, this word becoming flesh that we celebrate in the Christmas season. You will not feel the impact of that unless you first, and we try to do this in every worship service, begin by focusing on the glory that he came from. In John chapter 17, Jesus, John records there a prayer of Jesus talking to his heavenly father And he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In that moment, he was contemplating the glory. Can you imagine what it'd be like to be a human being and yet God and remembering living in this dirty, fallen, twisted, messed up world, and, but yet always remembering the glory, the perfect glory and the power and the majesty of being enthroned in heaven. There's an interesting passage in John chapter 12 where it, uh, John, the apostle John's actually writing this, reflecting upon the ministry of Jesus. And he's reflecting on the fact that The Son of God was rejected in this life by and large. And so I'm going to pick up the reading in John 12 with verse 37, where it says, Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And this is the quote. There are two quotes here from Isaiah. The first one says, Lord, who has believed what he heard heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so John goes on to say, therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and here's the second quote, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But what I want you to listen to is here the the concluding comment that John makes. He says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He said, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. When he wrote those words, he's he's one who had seen the glory of Jesus. Where did Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who lived 800 years before Christ, where did Isaiah see the glory of Jesus Christ? Commentators are agreed. There's only one place in the book of Isaiah that John could be referring to. It's Isaiah chapter 6. 
where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Yes, that's a passage describing a vision that Isaiah had of Yahweh in his heavenly glory. But John says he was actually looking upon the pre-incarnate son of God seated on the throne. I've seen the king, he said. That's the glory that Jesus came from. And that's what Paul marvels at in that great passage from Philippians 2 that we read from earlier in the service. Paul says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the first aspect of the humiliation of Christ, is that he added to his divine nature a human nature. He was born as a helpless infant into this world. But the catechism question goes on to say, not only that he was born, but he was born in a low condition, a humble condition, a very lowly position. And that's what I want us to focus upon this morning. First of all, I want you to think about, as we think about this unexpected savior, this unexpected Messiah, think about his unexpected parents. Who would have picked these parents for the coming of the king of the universe? Joseph was a small-town carpenter, which meant he had small jobs and small income. His poverty, the poverty of Joseph and Mary as newlyweds, is confirmed in verse 24 of chapter 2. If you look ahead at the end of the chapter, when Joseph and Mary took Jesus to be uh, dedicated at the temple and presented at the temple, they had to present a sacrifice. The law of Moses said that when a woman went to the temple to present the child, she had to be cleansed by the sacrifice of a lamb. That was what the law required, unless the couple were poor. Then the law of Moses allowed for the sacrifice of two birds. And so that's what it says at the end of Luke 2, that that's what Joseph and Mary offered at the temple. They were poor, as we would expect of a small-town carpenter and his teenage bride. From the beginning to the end of Jesus' life, he lived in poverty. If you think there's shame in being poor, then you ought to be ashamed of Jesus because he lived his entire life in poverty. One of his starry-eyed disciples came running up to him one day and said, boy, I want to follow you, Jesus. And Jesus replied by saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the king of the universe, the Lord that we serve. Even worse, when you think of Jesus' unexpected parents, he was part of a family where the parents lived under a cloud of shame their entire life. Why? Because everyone who didn't believe the good news about Jesus would have assumed that they had had premarital sex and that Jesus was an illegitimate son. They would have assumed that. 
This label of illegitimate son would dog Jesus' entire life. Matter of fact, there's a point in John chapter six, after Jesus claims to be the bread sent down from heaven, his opponents reply by saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? His parents, you know, we, we don't think of premarital sex as sinful in this culture. It's not seen as a thing of great shame, but understand that in that first century Jewish culture, it was incredible shamefulness. It was deep humiliation. And Jesus' parents would have lived with that their entire life. And Jesus would have borne the mark of being an illegitimate son. That's his parents. People could not believe that somebody like him from a family like that could have come down from heaven. Well, that causes us to think, well, where did people think he came from? Where, what did people think of the place where he was, where he was born? What did people think of the, the town where he grew up in? Well, Joseph was from Nazareth, and we'll talk about Nazareth in a minute. But we see here in Luke 2 that what seems to be terrible timing, Joseph was required to go back to his family, his ancestors' family town of Bethlehem in order to be registered, in order to be taxed. And so as Joseph makes the trip, what's interesting is that, and commentators, almost all of them comment on this, why did Mary go with him? Mary was probably in her last trimester of pregnancy. It was a hard trip. Why did Mary go with Joseph? The wife would not be required to go back to be registered, only the head of the household. So why was Mary with him? The only reason that we can think of is that he didn't want her to give birth in Nazareth to bear the shame by herself. And so she went with him so that the baby would be born outside of their hometown. I wanna make just a side point here, but I think it's significant. Leon Morris, the commentator, points out that God used, think about what God used in order to fulfill the prophecy that we talked about last week from Micah chapter two, that the Messiah, the King of the universe, the Redeemer, the Savior, when he was gonna be born, was gonna be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. How did God make that happen when Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. He used two things. He used a taxation decree by a pagan emperor, and he used the gossiping tongues of the people of Nazareth to make sure that Joseph and Mary would be in the city of David to fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. I just want you to think about that. The next time you complain about a president's decision or a Congress decision or a Supreme Court decision, when you complain about your taxes because you're going to start getting those forms in about a month or two, when you look at the messed up circumstances of your life, when you look at issues with your own reputation, when you look at the problems, the sufferings that you face, God works very often through unexpected and strange providences to accomplish his will, just as he did in making sure that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of being born in Bethlehem. Proverbs chapter 21, verse one says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. 
So Bethlehem. To fulfill the prophecy, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But even in Micah's day, when Micah made the prophecy that the Messiah would be born there, he called it too little to be among the clans of Judah. Too little to be noticed. It was insignificant. But when you think about him being born in Bethlehem, what's the most shocking about that whole scene is the location in Bethlehem where he was born. Again, by God's sovereign arrangement, providential care of the circumstances of that situation, they did not have a place, that because, probably because of the taxation from a human standpoint, with all the people returning to Bethlehem, there was not a place for them to rent, to stay in. And so they go to a stable, a place where animals are kept. Uh, it's interesting, a lot of the more recent Jesus movies have portrayed it as being in a cave because that's actually probably correct. One of the earliest sources we have outside of the Bible for this uh, account of the birth is from Justin Martyr, about 150 AD, so about 150 years after the birth of Christ. He said that this stable that where the animals were kept, where Jesus was born, was actually in a cave. But a cave, not just a cave, a place where animals are kept. I know that's something we talk about a lot this time of year, but just let that sink in again. The king of the universe, the one who was seated on a throne, the one that had the angels singing holy, holy, holy to, was born in a stable. If you're parents, you remember when you had your first child, what that was like. You set apart one of your nicer bedrooms, you painted it up, made it really nice, you bought a brand new crib or bassinet to place in it, you put stuffed animals in there, you made it immaculately clean. Jesus was born and placed in a manger. One of our elders after the first service said that uh, he lived, when he was growing up, he lived across from a farmer and he went over, his parents sent him over there to help the farmer one day and when he was helping him, he was cleaning out the barn and the farmer said, hey, go put some of that hay in the manger over there. And as a kid, that was the first time it ever dawned on him that the manger wasn't some nice little wooden bed they pulled out of the church basement to put up for the play on Christmas Eve that it was actually a feeding trough. You know, Jesus was laid in a feeding trough surrounded by manure and sprinkled with donkey drool. It's just, I, it just again, I don't want to sensationalize it. The Bible doesn't sensationalize it, but it's part of his humiliation. And God arranged it, arranged it this way. It was meant the fact that he first slept in a feeding trough was meant to be a sign. You notice that in the, verse 12, at the end of the passage we read, the shepherds, when they were sent to Bethlehem to find the Messiah, they were given a sign. And it says they were to look for a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Well, that's not a sign because that's how babies were treated. That's how babies were kept warm in that day. They were wrapped in swaddling cloths. Nothing unusual about that. There probably were one or two other babies in Bethlehem that were wrapped in swaddling cloths. That wasn't the sign. The sign was that he was laying in a feeding trough. That would be shocking, even to shepherds. When I was a child and I would come running into the house from outside and inevitably leave the door open, my father would yell at me and say, hey, when you're born in a barn, shut that door. Jesus' you know, parents, Joseph and Mary, they could never use that line with Jesus because he'd say, yeah, matter of fact, I was. 
He was born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough. But then he was taken home eventually. We don't know how much later. He was taken home to Joseph, Mary's hometown, Nazareth. Remember, he was called Jesus of Nazareth. That's what the people all knew him as from that point on, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you remember what Nathaniel said when Philip invited him to come to meet Jesus? Nathaniel said to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was the wrong side of the tracks. It was not someplace, nobody, Jesus did not walk around saying, Jesus, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You know, nobody was proud to be from Nazareth. I bring all this up just to underline for you the familiar truth that Jesus entered into humiliation in order to save you from your sins. Jesus entered into all aspects of your life in a fallen world. He experienced everything you experienced. What shame do you carry on your shoulders? Some shame you carry is due to your own sin. Jesus never sinned, so he felt no shame from his own sin. But so much of his life, that's the thing I'm trying to emphasize here, so much of his life was shameful in the eyes of the world. We feel shame when we don't measure up to the standards of the people around us. And I just want you to think for a minute how much time you think about the standards that other people impose upon you. We talked already about the way you dress, the way you talk, the car you drive, the house you live in, the career you're pursuing, the grades on your report card, whatever it might be. You're striving every day, and it gets so wearying, doesn't it, to live up to all the standards of everybody around you. But Jesus came into our humiliation. He knows what it's like to feel that kind of shame. He sympathizes. But so much more than that, you know that shame that you feel because of your sin, the stuff that you'll never talk about to anybody, the stuff that nobody else knows, that deep, dark shame in your life? He knows what that feels like because he took your shame upon himself. He took your guilt upon himself at the cross. He entered into that shame of your shame as well. It wasn't his own from his own sin. It was your sin that created that shame. The most humiliating punishment that human beings have ever come up with was Roman crucifixion. It's the most, talk about humiliation as a mean of punishment. It was the most humiliating form of punishment that has ever been devised. A long sequence of public mocking, a public scourging, having the skin ripped off your body, being paraded through the city, be mocked and spat upon, being stripped naked and nailed to a cross and put on public display, straining for every breath until you die. That's what Paul ultimately is marveling at in Philippians 2 when he says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. And that's how we get rid of our shame is what he did for us. But then finally, I want you to notice the unexpected witnesses that God chose. He came 
to unexpected parents in an unexpected place. He grew up in an unexpected place. And even the witnesses who were first sent out to take the message to the world are the most unexpected witnesses that God could have possibly chosen. He chose a group of shepherds. An angel appeared in the sky as they were watching their sheep that night. An angel appeared and the glory of God shone around him. And the angel was actually the first witness, the one to first preach the gospel. He says, I bring you good news. David's son, the promised Messiah, the Savior, and the Lord has been born in Bethlehem. Now, if you know anything about first century Jewish culture, you know that shepherds were near the bottom of the social strata. I think the only group of people underneath the shepherds were the tax collectors. Watching the sheep was the job that was dumped on the youngest in the family. That's why David was a shepherd. It was an intensely boring and tedious job that nobody wanted. It was a dirty job. You had to do so many things in caring for the sheep that made you ceremonially unclean, which made you difficult for you to engage with the social and religious life of Israel. And shepherding was a hard life and it tended to attract people that were rough around the edges in many ways. Shepherds in general were considered to be immoral and untrustworthy. And it got to the point where the Jewish Talmud, the teaching of the Jewish rabbis, in the Talmud it says that shepherds couldn't give testimony in court because you couldn't trust their word. And yet, what, what are they chosen by God to do? at the birth of Christ, to be the very first witnesses to the Messiah's birth. It would be just like God to pick the lowest people in the social strata to go out and be his first witnesses. God chose Moses, who was a shepherd. God chose David, who was a shepherd. Jesus proclaimed himself to be the good shepherd. God is in the business of redeeming shepherds. I have a tendency to think that God has poor choice. When I look around, look around at the church, look around at the culture around us, I have a tendency to think that God has poor choice in who he chooses to be his witnesses. If I wanted to get big results for the kingdom of God, I would choose the powerful people, the beautiful people, the talented people. I would have the Holy, I'd send the Holy Spirit to convert big movie stars and very successful professional athletes and the most powerful politicians, then we could really get something done for the kingdom of God. Remember what James said in chapter two, listen, my beloved brothers, has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And then there's that great passage in 1 Corinthians chapter one, where Paul reflects on how God calls his people to himself, the kind of people he calls to himself. I'm gonna start in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then in chapter two, he even describes his own ministry in these terms. He says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God chooses us not based on anything in us. And he often chooses what the world would consider jars of clay so that his glory might show through us. Merriam-Webster describes or defines humiliation as, quote, to reduce someone to a lower position in the eyes of others. That's exactly what God the Father did with his only begotten son. He reduced him to a lower position in the eyes of the world. But what's astounding about it is he didn't force his son to do it. He did it willingly. And he did it because he loves you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, that's the way his kingdom works. Humiliation, then exaltation. As Philippians 2 ends that passage by saying, God has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. That's our king. That's our redeemer. That's the one who has taken away our guilt and our shame. And we are to go and live as Christians, as followers of Christ, as little Christs. We live in a kingdom where it says, according Jesus says, according to Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. How many times did he say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first? 1 Peter 5, verse 5 First Peter chapter 5, verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus said, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, we live by different standards than the world, and if you make it your life about impressing the world, you're going to live a very unsatisfied life. We live to serve other sinners, but we don't live to please other sinners. We don't live according to their standards. We live by the standards of the kingdom, where the first is the last and the last will be first. When so, every day you're asked the question, I bet you at least once a day you're asked the question, how are you doing? I want you to think about how you answer that question. Do you answer that question according to the world's standards or according to the kingdom's standards? Do you answer that question in light of how you're doing in terms of your income or your health or your looks or your relationships or your career? Or do you answer that question in terms of the kingdom? I have one good Christian friend who always answers that question better than I deserve. That's a kingdom answer to the question of how you're doing. That's a humble answer. In the kingdom of God, you're measured by your humility and your faith. Not your looks, not your income, not your friends, or not your abilities. Christ will turn your life upside down. I want to close by reading just one paragraph from a letter from a prisoner in a prison who's being incarcerated in a prison in Alabama. And he wrote this letter just reflecting on the message of the humiliation of Christ at Christmas. I want you to listen to what he says. When Jesus enters our life as Lord and Savior, a paradigm shift occurs in our system of values. We begin to see the world and life in a Christ-centered way. 
We begin to identify ourselves as Christians, and then suddenly everything is about Jesus. Whatever labels the world chooses to identify us by fall subject to this all-encompassing identity of being a Christian. If we are inmates, we are Christian inmates, and that makes all the difference. What the incarnation of Christ means to my incarnation, what the incarnation of Christ means to my incarceration is that my incarceration is not what identifies me. The cross has leveled the playing field by making us all sinners in need of a savior. He gets it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the way into your kingdom begins with humbling ourselves recognizing our unworthiness so that we might look to Christ to do all that needs to be done, to be all that we need that needs to be, for us to be, to be a part of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that he bore our shame and our guilt. Thank you, Lord, that he has given us the gift of his own righteousness and eternal life. Thank you, Lord, that when you sent your kingdom to the world, you sent him into poverty, into our poverty, in order that we might be rich. Father, focus our hope in this Christmas season on that inheritance and on nothing, none of this world's rewards. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.